Now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, At this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines, because I have seen the affliction of, affliction of my people, for their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man I told you about. He will govern my people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The pastor's here, so welcome to church this morning. This morning we're going to be um, spending our time in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. So if you want to open up your Bibles and head over there to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be walking through this, and I, you may have noticed if you've been journeying with us, if you've been walking through this book with us in the past, you may have noticed that our scripture focuses are normally a bit longer than they were this morning. Normally we read the full chapter because we want all of us to kind of really get on the same page, but today I only had, I only had Evelyn read just a few verses, and there is an intent way that this chapter kind of lays itself out. Our, our series title for this, uh, walking through this book, 1 Samuel, is called When Mess Meets Mercy, because throughout this book of biblical history, we find a mess of poor decisions, of moral failings, but in all of it, we discover a God that continues to be moving the story along through his merciful acts and his kindness. The human condition here is on, it's on full display. And yet, through the sin and suffering of Israel, there's this, there's this pulse. I kind of call it this underlying current of God's providential grace, sometimes subtle, sometimes obvious. But before we keep going, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you help us see, see your word? Help us see the truth of your grace and your gospel. God, as we open up our Bibles, as we have the words before us, let them come alive. Let your word fill us with awe. Let your word fill us with hope. And let us see all of the things that you're doing around us in the ordinary moments, in the mundane movements. Let us connect this passage with our lives now. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. So our passage this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 9, is a passage that reveals God's handiwork in quiet providence. If you're not familiar with the term providence before, this is a word that we like to use to describe God, uh, uh, the way that God governs, the way that God moves and causes things to be that we do not actively notice. It's the involvement of himself in the workings of the world. When we take a step back and we look at all of these movements, all the things that he's doing in the scriptures and then in the testimonies of our lives, 
We look at that and we call it providence. But each of us, I think, can agree that life is filled with more ordinary and mundane moments than there are big, elaborate, major episodes. Our life is a continuation of ordinary and mundane moments. Our day-to-day rituals, it's the expectant schedule, it's the steady, continuous planning, and, it's, and, I've already, and I may have challenged some of you busy parents because you guys are like, Mark, no, that is not my life. My life is crazy. And I would say, yes, probably, so is mine, but there's also an expectancy in that to have a crazy schedule. To see, to look at a crazy schedule, to look at things happening that are maybe outside of your control, and then just to say, well, here we go. Let's just kind of run through, roll through the punches and kind of get through this. In the sense, both the mundane and the ordinary can also be, you can have the same posture in even something busy and crazy and out of control. We find in both senses a constant mess and and overwhelm as we're approaching these subjects. But each of us, if we are being honest, wonders if, in both of those circumstances, if there is significance in them. Is there significance in in these moments of life? And is, is is God really moving in them? Or is God's pulse of providence, is it there at all? What I hope to show you this morning is that God's testimony in this passage is about how he quietly works, how he quietly works through ordinary mundane moments of our lives to reveal to us his compassion and his mercy, where God's providence gives us a glimpse into the deeper work Christ plays in a thousand different places. So let's jump in. First, we're just going to look at these providential backdrops. Providential backdrops. Now, we're going to focus our attention on this first section. This is one through, verses 1 through 4. And all of a sudden, we're just taken out of our context of last week. And I say it dramatically like this, throwing my hands in the air, because last week was kind of dramatic. It was a big deal in this book. As you can tell, I'm emotionally invested in it. It was a big deal. Israel had rejected God. There's this dramatic story of Israel's elders coming to Samuel to request a king like all of the other nations. God was their king, but Israel was unsatisfied with their difference of being a chosen people, and they wanted to just dismiss their difference just to be like everyone else. And the story, it it just ends with yelling back and forth. There's a very dramatic Samuel. He's going back and forth. He doesn't even want to say what the Israelites are saying. God is fully aware of everything that's happening. And this persistent statement that God keeps saying is to Samuel, give them what they want. Give them what they want. And then this chapter ends. The chapter ends by Samuel dismissing the elders 
with the, with the sight that now they are no longer going to have God as their king, but now they're going to have a king just like all of the other nations. And you're just left wondering what's going to happen. But all of a sudden, we're just swept away in chapter 9 into a setting that's almost outside of the, the same world as what we were just in. Now we're in a rural farm. Okay, what happened? We're in this rural farm, and it's as if the author is now changing settings in the chapter, like a chapter of a book. And so we need to know as the audience what, what's happening here, what's, what's going on. But I think what we'll see is that we're going to see that this story is going to be quite surprising because we know nothing about the events to, the events to come. Excuse me, Just that God is going to follow through in providing this leader. We just don't know how yet. So we get introduced to Kish. Kish and Saul, this is a father and son in rural Benjaminite village. I don't know if you guys can know, but if you just looked at that first, if you glance at the first verse, you're going to notice a lot of names that are really hard to pronounce, and your eyes may have glazed over at looking at those names in those cities, in this, and you might have just thought, but... I want to encourage you, maybe not right now speaking it out loud, but sometime today, speak it out loud because anytime you see a family heritage, it's really important. Anytime you see this list of complicated names, it's, it's something is happening that the author wants you to be aware of. It's not just their names. He wants you to track what's going on here. And what we find is that we see that Kish is this prominent man. This prominent man, and now we're taken to, well, if this is a Benjaminite city, this was, this was the least significant of all of the villages. Why is there this prominent man? Let's read verses two through three, and we'll kind of get a better idea of what's happening, why we're introduced to this, this man named Kish. It says, he, Kish, has a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. One day, the donkeys of Saul's father, Kish, wandered off. Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So here we're introduced to a, a, a father named Kish and his young son named Saul. An impressive young man with a very ordinary problem. And there's a lot of little questions and discoveries hidden in this chapter, but we just reached the first one. We have the Benjaminite tribe. The least significant now has the most prominent man with the most impressive son in all of Israel. And the word impressive here is not just describing his height, even though we can look at that. I mean, that's, a, that's a, an important feature with Saul. But the word impressive here is not just defining his look. It's also describing his nature and just his personality and how he interacts with others. It'd be like this. Have you ever met a celebrity in person and they stand up and they're like much taller and then they're just nice to you or they're cordial and you walk away and you're like, that, that guy was amazing. 
I wanted to, like when I was a kid, uh, this was before LeBron James, but like Michael Jordan, I had posters of him, and some of you are like, Mark, you don't play sports. I know, but still, he was cool. I thought he was awesome. But if I would have met him, I would have been really, I would have been really excited. I never did. Unfortunately, I don't think I've ever really met any celebrities but one, and it was kind of the negative side of things. But it actually also plays to the same purpose of this. Because when we look at a celebrity or someone and we see their tall stature, we see their cordial attitude, we kind of like them instantly. We're like, that, that guy was amazing. This was great. But in the other side of things, we also have the opposite effect of that happen. When, uh, and I'll tell you my experience. One time I met one celebrity and he was American, an American Idol contestant. You can already see where this is going. The American Idol contestant, he was a local um, guy who kind of was born in art in Bothell, this hometown area um, where I grew up. And everyone was really excited that he became a contestant. There was like a parade. He came. Everyone's really excited. They're looking at him. And then my sister was working at the Outback Steakhouse, and she calls me one night, and she says, Mark, you have to get here. Because the, the guy, the American Idol contestant, he's here. He's here at the bar. Go get his autograph. And I was like, that's, okay, that's awesome. I'm going to go down. And I go down, and it was like the worst experience ever. It was like I go up. It's, this, it's the Outback. So, I mean, unless I'm going to eat steak, there's really no purpose to be hanging out at the Outback Steakhouse, right? But I go up, and it's just him alone. He's just by himself. Like, I thought it would be a little different. I thought he would have an entourage or something around him. He's just there, and it's dark, and I walk up. I'm by myself, and I and say, hello, hey. And he does this thing that bothers me. He did the thing where you kind of, um, I don't even know if I can describe it. It's just this. What up? Like that. Like, that's no, that's no greeting. <laughs> Not even a hello, how are you? You know, it's just, what a, like that gravelly voice, you know? And now I don't even know what to say, and I'm just there, and he, and then he, but he knows that I want an autograph, but I don't really want it anymore, you know, it's a weird feeling. And, he, and then he just signs his autograph on the back of his receipt and just slides it my way. And as I'm walking away, he says this. He goes, by the way, your sister's cute. And I'm like, And I go to my sister, I'm like, that guy, that guy is a jerk. But he's a lot smaller in person than he is on TV. He's a little guy. And then I walk away. My entire perspective of him changed over this course of just talking with him and his personality. Now, thankfully, this is not the case of Saul. But we do have this tendency to elevate based off of height and personality and or Make them smaller if they're kind of mean to us. <laughs> or say your sister's cute. That's gross. Anyway, she's pretty. Just, that's a weird thing. Anyway, where are you? Here we are. His impressive nature, his personality, it was reinforced by his, his, his height. But we have just this ordinary problem. This impressive man, has, his dad has lost his donkeys. And so now we're just going to be on this journey with him. We're being on this journey with him, and we're wondering, what's, what's going on here? 
In the next few verses, there's a lot of mundaneness going on. They walk to a village and they don't find the donkeys. So they walk to another village and they don't find the donkeys. So then they walk through another village and they don't find the donkeys. There's a lot of missing donkeys and a lot of walking. And we're not quite sure what's really happening here. But perhaps these ordinary mundane moments have a pulse of something more that's going on underneath the surface. We start to begin to see the significance of mundane mysteries and minor characters that play a role in all of these things just happening. All of this walking, all of these missing donkeys. We're introduced into some minor characters here. When I became a new believer in high school, I didn't have the spiritual maturity yet. I was growing in it, but I didn't have the spiritual maturity to recognize these spiritual changes that were taking place in my life. But there was this element of my faith that I remember being very significant. I had a new sense of purpose. And I couldn't yet quite identify it, but I had this new sense of purpose, and I felt that my significance was now being wrapped up in this new awareness of what God was doing, and I began to have this feeling that the things around me are not necessarily as they seem all the time. That there's perhaps an undercurrent of something going on that I once didn't recognize, but now I see with a lot more clarity. And I was hearing for the first time within my youth group and different things, as a new believer, I was introduced for the first time people saying things like this, God did this today. God blessed me today like this. God helped me with that. God was actively doing things in the lives of my friends around me. And I didn't really know much about him yet, but I became increasingly aware that the God who saved me through his son Jesus actually talked to people, actually did things. He, he talked to people. He moved in their lives. And I was now starting to see little glimpses of this in my own life. And this was significant because I was the only one in my youth group who had divorced parents. And I was the only one in my high school group of friends that was living as an independent because I had moved out of high school early, or I had moved out of my house in high school early. And so my, my high school deemed me as like an independent. I had every single kind of aid that high school could give someone just to try to get them to graduate. Right? And I was looking, and my life felt very different from all of my friends in, in youth group and my friends even in, in high school. But now, I was able to partake in this, this awareness of God was doing something, not just in my friend's life, not just separated, but he was doing something in me too. I could look and I could say, yeah, God did do something differently today. I did have that moment where I, I see him moving in this, and I became to get really excited 
my faith was encouraged. And I began to try to identify, identify ways that God was, was moving in my life. And sometimes I'd get it right, and sometimes my friends would help me and say, well, no, that's not exactly how it goes. But either way, it was this continual movement towards trying to recognize the awareness of how God was providentially moving in my life and in and through me now as a disciple. I didn't even fully understand it yet. Eugene Peterson, uh, he says it well when he says this, we have this feeling in our bones that we are involved in an enterprise that is more than the sum of the parts that we can account for by looking around us. We have a feeling in our bones that we are part of something more even when we can't quite understand or identify the movements that are happening underneath the surface, but they are movements nonetheless. But I want to encourage you, young believers, young believers, you uplift the spirits of disciples who have grown comfortable because you renew in us our sense of wonder our sense of wonder in the quiet providence of God and the everyday workings of life. If you think that you're a minor character, you're not. There are no minor characters in God's redemptive story. Everyone has a place. And to the young believer who has a new awareness and a new fondness of their Lord and is walking in the path of Jesus, call out what you see. Call out what you see because you renew the sense of wonder in those disciples who have grown comfortable. We get really comfortable using the same language day in and day out, but friends, do not miss, do not miss what you're saying. There is beauty in all the things that God does, and we sometimes take it for granted, don't we? We sometimes miss it. And the young believer doesn't have to be the, uh, uh, a child, doesn't have to be, it's a, adults. You perhaps will have an, a more dramatic awareness now, a new dramatic spiritual awareness of, this, of the providence of God moving in and through you. You encourage us. You encourage us, and also for those seasoned disciples who, who have the language and have grown accustomed to thinking about God's grace and saying God's grace and saying the things repeatedly over and over, let us be renewed in our sense of wonder over the mundane mysteries that happen in everyday life. The providence of God involves all of his children coming to the recognition that they are swept into a story beyond themselves. You are swept into a story beyond yourself. Your life is not insignificant by any means. Just even if your past is different than others. You are a child of the king. You are a child of the king. 
and have been brought into this grand story of redemption, have been brought and swept into God's providential backdrops, mundane moments now become filled with mystery as we seek to try to understand and become aware of how God is moving in and through us. We begin to recognize the the phrase that we like to say here at our church, God at work. God at work. But let's go back to verses 5, 5 and 6. They travel up this hill countryside. They haven't found any donkeys. In verse 5, it says this, When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come on, let's go back or my father will stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. Look, the servant said, there's a man of God in this city who is highly respected. Everything he says is sure to come true. Let us go there now. Maybe he'll tell us which way we should go. Now, there's just a few things to take notice of. A few things to take notice of. The land that they finally arrive in is, called, is the land called Zuf. Okay, we don't know quite what that means, but a little digging, the servant, he takes notice of this. And he says, hey, there is a man of God here. That's because little did they know they weren't necessarily trying to arrive to this place, but the land of Zuf is Samuel's great-great-grandfather's land. How unusual. They were just looking around for donkeys. Now they wind up in a land, and all of a sudden, the servant says, wait a minute. We're in the land of the man of God here, and the man of God is here. Now, what's funny is that the servant doesn't know Samuel's name. He just calls him the man of God, and that gives us a sense of there is a detachment of sorts, but all of a sudden, the servant, perhaps the minor character in this story, has noticed a mysterious change in this mundane search. There's more going on because also what he says is the translation, the English translation, it doesn't do us justice here. But the Hebrew language that he uses is he says, perhaps he can tell us our way on which we have walked. What that means is not he's going to tell us which way we've walked. It means he tells us our way. Perhaps now that we have arrived in this land, this man of God can speak to our hearts and tell us of the longings of the ways that we are the ways that we are longing to go perhaps there's something more here going on but friends this is also the first time Saul speaks and this is really important because what Saul says first is pretty significant now in Old Testament literature, what, the, what someone says first is a bit of an indication of what kind of, of what the author wants you to see them to be and described as. So what does Saul say? Let's go back. Not good. Not a good introduction. Right? We can already see off the bat that, that Saul, though good in nature, Though having a nice personality, an impressive personality, a foot taller than everyone else, he has a lack of spiritual awareness. There's a blindness that's going on. 
That's worth taking note of. That's worth taking note of. But the servant is the opposite. We notice that he doesn't give up. In fact, he's unusually persistent. Right? Why is he so persistent about this traveling man? Saul doesn't get it, and he makes excuses that they don't have anything to give his service, which is a further indication that he's removed from this story of how judges operated. You didn't need to bring money to ask for things. You could just go up to them. You could talk to them. In some cases, there was an exchange of gifts. There was an exchange of something, but not always. Not always. And certainly in this, not in this case at all. But read verse 8 with me. The servant answered Saul, Here, I have a little silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he will tell us which way we should go. Again, the English doesn't do us justice here because this is when things start to get really mysterious. The translation is, There is found in my hand a little silver. So this servant is now like, We're in the land of the man of God. How did we get here? We should go see him. Maybe he can tell us which way that we are going. And Saul says, no, let's go back. We don't have anything to give him. Here in my hand, I have just discovered this. All of a sudden, the silver just appears. I hope you guys, maybe it's the masks, but you're not as excited as I, as I am right now. <laughs> anyway, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You're all smiling under there. He says, how did that get there? The servant, he's losing his mind. He's excited. He doesn't know what to do. He's like, we have to go. He is the persistent one. He is the one with the awareness that something's happening. But Saul finally agrees, and he just says, come on, let's go. Or he says, good. Good. Let's go. Okay, because things aren't a big deal right now. Things aren't happening. But friends, our spiritual recognition the spiritual recognition is not coming from Saul. It's coming from the minor character, which says everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a part to play. But not only that, not just this one servant, but we're going to see this happen again in verse 12 and 14. And that gives us, and it's going to give us more insight into, into the development of what God's doing in, these, in this moment. We then move from, Saul, from uh, verses 12 to 14. They reach... The, the entrance of the city where we find a group of women uh, drawing water. They come up and they ask them, is the seer here? Let's read verses 12 through 14. Let's read the sec- next section. It says, the women answered, yes, he is ahead of you. Hurry, he just now entered the city because there's a sacrifice for the people at the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes to the high place to eat. And the people won't eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. After that, the guests can eat. Go up immediately. You can find him now. So they went up towards the city. But notice the inflection of the urgency in their voice, in in her voice. Hurry. Go up immediately. He just now entered. Samuel is not just sitting in his tent. He's not, he hasn't been there for a long time. We have a moment of recognition 
that the woman draws from these two travelers coming here to Saul or to Samuel just now arriving in the city. They have come at the same place at the same time. Everyone that was awaiting Samuel is inside the city preparing for the feast. So what's the purpose of these two young travelers coming around? Why are they so important? Something unusual is going on. As they're walking up, she says, he's right there. Go up and see him. Go hurry. Go immediately to him. Go immediately to him. So they walk up. We don't know, but we can assume that there isn't much urgency in their walking because we're going to find out what Samuel does, but with their walking, they're just kind of walking towards the city. They didn't run. They didn't go in haste. God has let both groups to meet from opposite ends of the country, though, from what we see now. And the mystery is finally being revealed as this act of mercy. Because behind this providence is this compassion for mercy and mercy for Israel. Let me show you what, what I mean by that. Because now we're finally to the point where all of these moments have met their climax, their conclusion. Verse 15 and 17, this is what our scripture focus was. This is the mercy revealed. Let's read verses 16 again. At this time tomorrow, this is God speaking to Samuel a day before. At this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man I told you about. He will govern my people. At the same moment, the woman at the well said, go to him immediately. Saul and the servant are walking towards and God speaks to Samuel at the same moment, say, turn around. Because what I told you yesterday is now happening in this very moment. Go towards them because this man that you see, this man I told you about, he will govern my people. Do you see all of those moments? All of those quiet moments of providence. Things are happening apart from anyone's real connection, and yet at the same time, underneath, in this current of providence, is a mercy being revealed to everyone. Samuel now senses and sees what God is doing, even though Saul and the servant don't quite yet know what all is about to happen. But wait. Israel just failed miserably. Let us not forget, chapter 8, they failed. They rejected God as their king. Samuel warned the elders at the end of verse 18. This is what he said. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. 
Now, like Israel is a mess, right? Israel's a mess. They've rejected their true king and yet continue to cry out for, to God for help. So what, like, what do you want? Why should they be receiving anything when they've just dismissed everything to have a king that looks like all of the other nations? Why shouldn't they be receiving the judgment that they were warned about? But friends, this is when mess meets mercy. In sin, God's tenderness towards his people does not diminish, but increases in intensity. In this moment of rejection, God, that Israel had rejected God, God did not say, I'm done with you. When he heard the cries of their people, he moved towards them. God's tenderness towards his people, caught in sin, never diminishes, but increases in intensity. Our guilt and shame is outstripped by his abounding grace. Amen? Our guilt and shame is outstripped by his abounding grace. Romans 5.20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And we are getting this picture right now because notice what happens. Through this moment of events, we have verse 14. Samuel moves towards Saul. Samuel invites Saul to fellowship. Samuel comforts Saul in his concern over this missing donkey. This is verse 20. This is when Samuel's speaking to Saul. He then even turns and ups the intensity. He starts to speak into the inner desires of Saul's heart. In verse 19. And then he turns it up even more. He, graces, he invites Saul and places him at the head of the table and giving him his portion, the priest's portion of the meat. Why are all of these things happening at once? It moved from a moving toward to an invitation, to fellowship, to comfort over these, these worries of life, to speaking these inner desires of the heart, to placing him at the head of the table, to giving him this portion of meat that is a portion of honor, why? What is happening here? And in this moment, friends, we discover that we are discovering grace in a thousand mercies. This is verses 19 through 25 as we're looking through all of this, just so you're looking here. Because what we see is, is Saul clearly lacks the spiritual discernment and is displayed, honestly, like more reluctance than bravery. It's not brave to go out looking for donkeys in this society. We don't know how to do that anymore, so that might be bravery for us. But there are other things that we're brave at. But in his sense, this is reluctance. This isn't, this isn't bravery. He hasn't recognized anything. He only cares about his donkey and his dad. And he reluctantly follows others' directions. Notice Saul hasn't really made too many decisions up to this point. Really none. And Israel's, but Israel's rejection in chapter 8 is still on our minds 
because we know that he is now going to be, he fits this physical image of what they want to see in a king. So he has a purpose here. But at the same time, grace is abounding. This unfitting, spiritually blind, reluctant young man has now been welcomed to a table to sit and to fellowship with the judge of Israel. And words of comfort, words of grace, and future blessing are now being given to him. So our question is, is Saul a consequence of Israel's sin? Or is God using his providence to to fulfill his predetermined plan? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. God is doing multiple things at once right now. He's doing a thousand, he's showing a thousand different mercies. His sovereignty is all at the same time. Mercy and the his sovereignty is reflected in the mercy and the consensus into redemption through quiet sinners and through redemption through quiet to display thousands and abundant mercies. Mercy is found in the missing donkeys, in the spiritual awareness of the servant. It's found in the urgent direction of the women. It's found in Samuel's instructions. It's, it's God providing Israel. It's found in God providing Israel with a man whose heart, though we quite, don't quite yet know, has an inner longing and a desire to lead. There is a stirring of mercy underneath. Isaiah 26 verse 12 says, Lord, you establish peace for us. For you have also done all our work for us. God has done it all. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? I want to illustrate this work of providence like this. We see God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty over the world and everything in it. And in his grace and in his compassion, he has made a path for us. A path for us to come through, it come to him through the atoning work of his son, Jesus. And he leads us in the path of salvation so that we can come to trust him on this path. We begin to recognize that he's the one leading all of this. He's the one doing all of this. This is, this is his path that he has made. It's not our path that we have made where God is just standing aloof and off. The God of the scriptures is a very, very intrinsically woven, active God who this way for us to walk will ultimately towards himself and towards his glory. But in our fallenness, in our fallenness, our walking resorts oftentimes to stopping. It resorts to stumbling. And it resorts at one time or another to diverting from our path, diverting our attention off of the path and away from him. But here is the promise. Here is the promise, friends. We will make it 
because he has kept his promise in Christ. He kept his promise even when we didn't. God's quiet providence ultimately brings us back on the journey towards final restoration. So when we're on the path, when we begin to look back, we don't see a life of ordinary and mundane moments. We see a life of quiet providence that's moving and active and we turn our shoulders and we see a mercy here. We see his compassion there. We begin to look and we see his movements here, his grace there. And that, friends, is what shapes our testimony. That's why we need to be good at, at recognizing our testimony and sharing it with others. Because our testimony isn't just helpful to explain your faith to others. Your testimony is your evidence of grace, of God's quiet providence in your life that has actively moved from compassion to mercy to grace and you begin to see the path that he leads you down this path that he has created for us the spiritual awareness of God's sovereignty is recognizing the quiet providence the grace in the grace and mercy we find in Jesus. But that's why also the scriptures give us some instruction too. What's the instruction that the scriptures say give us? Pay attention. Stay on the path. Cling to your God. Recognize what he is doing in and through you. You have not made the way towards your salvation. God has done it for you. There is a necessity to stay and to follow the path because it is really hard. It is really hard in your decisions, your attitude, your awareness, your recognition of his providential backdrops matter. We need to remember to, to look to him, to trust him in these moments. Because we so easily forget when we stop asking, God, speak your words over me so that I might remember your providence, that I might remember your grace. Even when I sin, I see that your grace is abounding all the more. Help me see the moments. Let me see the little things that you're doing. Help me see the insignificant so it can become significant. This is how our faith strengthens. This is how our, our, our faith strengthens in the spiritual renewal that God gives us through his spirit as we're walking with him. We begin to see providence and mercy. What is ours? What is ours? It's providence and mercy. And these are a few takeaways I just want to send with you as for this week. First is this. Christian, our world is God's providential backdrop. And we are swept into Christ's story of redemption. And everything from the mundane moments to the crazy schedules to the painful 
to the tears that happen so frequently, to the unknown seasons of looking at things and wondering where God is in all of it, to the joy, to the joyful moments that we have. All of these ultimately end, will end for his glory and for our good. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Everything is moving. Young believer, remember to point out the things that you see so that we may be renewed in our sense of wonder as well. Because remember this, friends, there are no minor characters in God's redemptive story. Every disciple has a significant opportunity to participate in Christ's mission and communion with him. Do you remember when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet? When he's washing the disciples' feet, they had no idea what was happening. They did not understand what he was doing. But Jesus speaks such wonderful words that we can apply now where it says in John 13, verse 7, he looks to Peter and he says, what I am doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus is right. There are many things that we don't understand about this world right now. There are many things we don't understand what's going on. But through the discipleship that we share together, we realize that there is great significance in each of our walks of faith. That you are not less significant, but you have significance in helping those around you see the movements of grace that God is doing in all of our lives. And there are going to be things that all of us don't understand, but we can walk towards hope and towards faith in Christ because afterwards you will understand. One day our journey will end and we will finally see with the full, beautiful, amazing, wonderful clarity the deep mercy and the compassion Christ played in a thousand different places. So I want to leave you with one verse as we move into our week. It's Isaiah 43, and I love this verse because I, I ask myself it often. So I want to leave it before you. It's Isaiah 43, verses 19. It says this. This is coming from God. He says, Look, I am about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Let's see together. Let's pray.